once verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Captains, you're listening to episode 307 of Priority One Podcast, your weekly report on all things Star Trek. Recorded live on Thursday, February 23rd, 2017, and available for download or streaming on Monday, February 27th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Tony. And I'm Kenna. And in the recording booth is the audio engineer of the week, Winters. Hello, everyone. All right, Kenna, what's going up this week? Well, this week we're checking out a new Star Trek-themed roller coaster, Nicholas Meyer's latest comments about Star Trek Discovery, and the latest rumor about Discovery's premiere date. In Star Trek Online news, the Tier 6 flagships are coming to console, but everyone's talking about the rebalancing of powers. Later, our science advisor, Dr. Robert Hurt, is here to talk about the discovery of potentially habitable planets just discovered by NASA. As always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. And this is the part of the show where we give you our contact information so you can keep the conversation going between episodes. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter at Priority One Pod. You can send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com or you can even leave us a voicemail. Just click on the SpeakPipe widget on our homepage at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Thanks again to all of our Patreon supporters who make this show possible from week to week. To find out more and add your support, head on over to our page at Patreon.com forward slash Priority One. Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. I don't know. Then let's check it out. Disney will soon have a new avatar theme park. Universal has the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. When is Star Trek going to have its own place? Well, a theme park in Botrop, Germany called Movie Park Germany just released a promo video for their latest roller coaster thrill ride, Star Trek Operation Enterprise. The theme of the coaster is set in the next-gen era and boasts a 40-meter elevation, which is about 120 feet in real world measurements, and it blasts you into high speed almost immediately. Additionally, there'll be a Federation Plaza that is themed to resemble Starfleet Academy. So, how many of you thrill-seekers will be jumping on a flight to Germany to experience this Star Trek-themed coaster? You should start planning your spring break vacations because that's when the coaster is slated to open. Now, this actually sounds really cool to me. I have not seen the video, but there is a serious lack of Star Trek theme park stuff, and it really upsets me, actually. Well, there was... Who was it? This is the King of Jordan or something that's a huge Star Trek fan, and I think he tried to build one or got one built in his kingdom. I think I'm I'm 99% sure it was Jordan. He appeared as an extra in one of the Next Generation shows, like a science officer using the blue. I'm 99% sure it's the King of Jordan. So, I mean, maybe there is one, or maybe it got closed down. I don't, I don't know what happened to it, but this is not the first try, because there was the uh, Star Trek Vegas thing, the Star Trek experience, no roller coaster, but, you know, they had a bar. So you could feel like you were 
spinning and, and, and twirling yeah. around. <laughs> exactly. You know. Well, I was trying to work out. So I was trying to work out whether any of the major theme parks had ties to either CBS or Paramount. And I couldn't work it out. So because I know that obviously Universal and Disney and all of that sort of stuff. And maybe that's part of the problem. I just think it's a it's a real shame. It's a bit of a missed opportunity. Not that I'm sure. I don't know where they would. I don't know how they would do it. I have to give that a little bit more thought. But, you know, oh, it, this does actually seem kind of fun to do a little Star Trek ride. And just the having the Starfleet Academy and just walking around it. Because I know what I felt like when I when I walked into Starfleet Academy in Star Trek Online, which is a video game. Imagine, imagine going to actual Starfleet Academy. That would be so cool. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, but it, it, theme parks are like generally geared towards parents with children with kids and so i don't know i don't know if there's quite the excitement that you'd get from an eight-year-old going yeah it's a building for botanical sciences and that one is for warp drive mechanics (laughs) where's darth vader can i have a sword that lights up can i have one of these no not here no okay yeah i I don't know that star trek is, is maybe geared towards theme park type things maybe well, so have you ever been to Universal Studios in Orlando? No. So I was there a couple of years ago, went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, among other places. Now, most of Universal Studios is actually not super, super themed. Like, they have different areas, kind of like Disney does, but, like, the superhero area is sort of a like a Main Street-type-looking thing, and then each of the rides is themed, but it's not like, you know, okay... Disney has whole worlds that are themed. Uh, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter is like a whole section that's themed like Harry Potter. But then the rest of the things, you've got like the Hulk and you've got a Spider-Man ride or you've got other things like that. I could see a Star Trek or two Star Trek rides within uh, something like that where they've got other pop culture things going on. Yeah, that would work. But I'm not I'm not sure it could take its whole, whole world. It would be... <laughs> If it did, though, imagine. It'd be kind of a slow-paced thing with lots of diplomacy. Mm, yes. The yeah. lines would be very polite. There would no be pushing, shoving, <laughs> none of that kind of stuff. Yeah. They would. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. you'd have to... Um, there'd be a lot of minors. Arrive. Yeah. Well, but yeah. they'd be theme park employees, right? You know, And so then there would be ushers in yellow shirts or red shirts, depending on what era you wanted to do. And they'd be like, hey, now, Mr. Klingon, don't, don't start a bar fight with us because those never end well. Everyone gets, you know assigned to quarters, you know, and there's bar fights in the K7, so. If you wanted to actually go on a ride, you'd have to you'd have to negotiate your way to the front of the line with some miners or Ferengi. Yeah, some warring factions or something. Yeah, it would well, it'd be a challenge. You know, just some thoughts. <laughs> we, you know, we love the we love the theme park we're building here. Just, you know, th- those are freebies. Uh, Paramount, you take them and run with them. Yeah. Uh, So moving on to our next story, TrekMovie.com had an opportunity to chat with Nick Meyer, the man who has arguably saved the franchise at least twice. When asked about his involvement, he said, quote, I was enormously flattered to be invited back as a sort of eminence grease, which is sort of what I am or have become, end quote. That description of himself is relieving. After all, with so much turmoil during the initial development of the series, the level of his involvement seemed to have started to thin out. Obviously, it has not. Yeah, so a lot of what he went through, he covered a lot of ground in his interview, and only a little bit of it was Star Trek Discovery, but he also kind of talked about his previous experiences with the uh, Star Trek franchise. And uh, he's got a quote in there 
about uh, his hopes for Star Trek Discovery, which I think also is one of the reasons I was so excited to have him back for this. Uh, he says, quote, I hope the new series contributes to that tradition. That would be a good thing, end quote. And he's, Nick Meyer's always been a storyteller, right? He's He took Sherlock Holmes and did something new with it. You know, he, he's got his own ideas of what character and, 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 uh, and narrative should be. And he transplanted that when he did Wrath of Khan and again when he did uh, Star Trek VI. So I, I think that he's got the right attitude for Star Trek, but he's not going to be bound by what Star Trek has done. Uh, I think I think this is good, uh, and I think that he's that if the Eminence Grease idea of somebody who's not necessarily going to be in the nitty gritty of every show, but can kind of go that flavor is wrong or that that tastes funny, don't do that. Uh, I think that is hopefully he's got that role in hand. And can let the mechanics of the showmaking be done by the younger kids. Uh, having an old gray beard like that around, somebody that knows how to tell a good story first and a good Star Trek story second, I think is a, is a good stabilizing thing. Well, that brings us to this week's community question. What storytelling traditions of the past Star Trek series do you hope to see in the new series? Hilarious villains and cheesy interspecies romance, or hot-button topics and socioeconomic commentary? As we all know, CBS has redacted the May release of Star Trek Discovery, and now we have a big fat TBD, or to be determined, uh, for those of you who don't, aren't familiar with the lingo. That's looming over us now. So will it be this year, next year, fall, spring? All we have are assumptions and guesswork, which we have determined we are not going to do here on this show. Uh, However, Doug Jones might have slipped us a little hint during an interview with the Triumph and Disaster podcast, sharing, quote, it'll air probably in the fall, maybe September-ish, end quote. Okay, well, here's hoping, first of all. And secondly, that's a quote, not a rumor, but it's a maybe unsubstantiated quote. Probably, maybe. We don't know. Well, finally, for our last show in February, we want to celebrate Black History Month and a talented woman we all know and love, Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek The Original Series. A video produced by the Dust Network on YouTube points to the significant Nichelle's role had on inspiring future men and women of color to fight through the harshness of racism and claim their rightful place in this world and beyond. Between Jean's vision of a future without hate and Nichelle's courage to take on that responsibility, we have one of the most beloved characters in sci-fi history. Let's continue to tell stories that are inclusive for all of Earth's inhabitants and inspire the future leaders of America to bring us closer to a united federation of planets. Now let's find out what happened this week in Star Trek Online. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. Well, Captains, welcome again to Star Trek Online News, where there are some big changes coming to the game that could make it more fun. Some of those changes are out on PC now, and we'll get to that in a minute. First, let's find out about the latest and greatest ships, and I mean literally the greatest, warping onto console. Tier 6 versions of each faction's flagships are the newest addition to the shipyards on PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. These ships come in three class variants for each faction, nine in total. 
Each of the nine new flagships comes complete with seating for a command specialization bridge officer and also comes with a unique starship trait and universal console. You can combine the universal consoles from each of the class variants to get a three-piece passive bonus that buffs your health and damage when a shield facing is depleted. And you can combine the three-piece with a console from the Krenim Science Vessel to get the four-piece set flagship technologies, which enhances the effects of each of the console's clickable abilities. These ships are available in the Sea Store now. You can buy them individually as faction-specific bundles of all three variants or the super bundle of all nine. For links to the full stats of each ship, we'll give you a link in our show notes at priorityonepodcast.com forward slash PO307. And just quickly before we move on to PC, here's a quick update on the Temporal Agent event. According to this week's patch notes, the Temporal Recruit Transponder, the device that gives you access to all the Temporal Recruit special rewards, is still not working. However, they've reiterated that progress will still count towards rewards when it is eventually patched. And this is just a reminder that the Temporal Agent weekly rewards are still running. This week, complete duty officer assignments to earn a server-wide Commendation XP bonus next week. All right, kids, hold on to your hats. Balance changes are coming to Star Trek Online. <gasps> now we're going to move on to the... P- that's right. It's now Hang on, hang on. It's okay. <laughs> now, it's on the PC for now. It's going to come to the console in the not-too-distant future. They published a blog early last week with the ominous title, Balance Changes Coming to Star Trek Online. Quoting the blog, We are excited to announce that one major project going on is a rebalance of a great number of the abilities and items that players use in combat. End quote. The main goal of the rebalance are to, quote, increase fun, end quote, to ensure that existing setups are not rendered useless, and finally to ensure that any choice you make in the game is meaningful, presumably to help us move away from the current system where there are a few setups that are really, really great, and the rest are kind of meh. The balancing changes are starting on ground and are live now, with space changes following suit soon. Okay, so, ground changes, don't care. Um... You know, shooty, shooty, bang, bang, never bothered me, never liked him. Dude, I care. Whatever. Do you care? I do Tell care. Tell me why you care. So, Make me care. Um, Convince me. Maybe it's because I just haven't spent enough time concentrating on ground, but I've never really kind of got my head around ground, and it's always kind of felt like I didn't know what I was doing. Okay, to be fair, I could get some help. Winters helped me with my space setup. Maybe I needed to do that with my ground. I can take mm. you to school anytime you want. Thank you for that offer. Um, mm-hmm. The point I was trying to make was that one of the things that they emphasized, one of the reasons that they were doing the rebalancing is to make it so that no choice that you make is a bad choice, that you can, you should be able to choose your play style and everything will be sufficient to then be able to uh, complete and enjoy the game. Um, so that to me is a big deal. I remember I got really fed up with ground combat in Kobali because I just couldn't do it on my oh, own. Oh, that was painful. I just couldn't do it. And I, you know, I had enough. I got bored of it. And still to this day, you know, even some of the featured episodes, like, I don't I don't really know what to do. And I, it, the, the ground is harder for me than space. So any kind of rebalancing that sort of makes the way that I think I should play more effective, that is good for me. Now, on the flip side... <laughs> Everything that I just said could be very easily translated into they're going to make it easier. Could be, yes. And uh, this is this is something that uh, if you want to play the game 
and just sort of like soak in a Star Trek story. Mm-hmm. I think that's how they've sort of built everything, and that's how they've sort of like that's the base case. Mm. They want to make sure that if you have leveled up to sixty and have that level sixty gear, you don't need to have the upgrades. You don't have to purple everything or gold everything. You don't have to mark fourteen everything. You just want to play the story. That that should be like the baseline. I think that what they're going to be trying to do here, and this is my crystal ball, is that they're going to leave, try to keep that base case the same. Mm-hmm. So that if you have Mark 12 whites, you can complete those missions on the easiest level. Mm-hmm. But if you want to ratchet up the missions or complete queues, or, uh, or and this is what I think the crystal ball is going, or PvP, mm-hmm. I think you're going to want those higher tier... Mm, interesting. Uh, yeah, those higher tier uh, slots. And they want to make sure that there's a variety of things you can do in PvP so that everybody has at least a shot at it. If you're science, if you're an engineer, if you're attack, you'll have a setup or a variety of setups that can be useful and also countered mm-hmm. uh, in, in that environment. Right now, that's probably not the case because the way the game's grown up over the last seven years is they tried to do PvP kind of in the beginning, kind of kind of, sort of, with the Klingon versus the Fed stuff, fell away from that completely mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Yep. Now it's all PvE. Yeah. And I think they're trying to trying to bring the ship back a little bit uh, uh, towards maybe where PvP is a little valid. Mm-hmm. Well, when the last time we talked to uh, Al Rivera, he did mention that they want to make PvP something that it can be meaningful within Star Trek Online again. I mean, I still think... I actually think PvE is where it's at. Um, because of the way that Star Trek, story-wise, is set up. It's always against an external thing, sure. isn't it? Forehead of the week, or crystalline entity, or you know, whatever godlike being happened, we happen to come across this week. Um, I don't know. What you said before, like, ground, eh. Um, eh. It will be... What's going to be interesting is to see what they do with space because currently in space if you go onto some of the forums etc you can see people parsing um isa the uh, uh inse- infected space mm-hmm. advanced queue at like 150k dps damage per second yeah. like easy some of them are over 200k uh-oh. now uh-oh winters is clearing <laughs> his throat uh-oh 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 no he is uh-oh. um where, you know, okay, I'm around the 30k mark last time I parsed, which was a long time ago. That was before the skill tree revamp, so hey. Um, and do do we need that? Like, what, you know, right. is that necessary? And I, and I wonder what's going to happen. Is, is this rebalancing going to make it so that you don't get that huge disparity? Uh, hmm. yeah. Go ahead, Winters. Go ahead. I, I kind of think that uh, you might be onto something there, Kenna. And it's something that we haven't said yet, but power creep. Yeah. This oh, could be something yeah. to tackle the enormous amount of power creep that we've had over the last few years. We have way more traits now, for example, available mm-hmm. to each of our characters. You can expand upon that then further you know, by buying extra slots. Uh-huh. And our starships now come with traits. And again, yep. you can expand that. And there's just been power creep since probably Delta Rising. There's been an awful lot of power creep. Yeah. And I'm wondering if this is an effort to, as they say, rebalance it. Yeah. And so there isn't such a huge difference from when you start off as a new player 
to when you get to level 60 maybe or something. Yeah. And I think Tony might be onto something as well with the PvP side of things as well. Yeah. Given that we know that something about that is probably coming in the pipeline pretty soon. Yeah. If you can spike 150,000 in damage, there are not a lot of ships that are going to be able to withstand that. Mm-mm. Unless they're also you know, spec'd to max heal and, and max resist. You know, mm-hmm. if, you can, if you can time if you can time that guy's spike alpha strike spike damage to your shield buffs and hull buffs, then you might have a prayer of, of, of balancing that up. That's a and heck then of it's timing. Just, and then you're just waiting for cooldowns. And you're yeah. like, okay, come on. If I, if I have if I have the duty officer that gives me a five percent cooldown advantage over the other guy, I'm gonna win mm-hmm. yeah. because I'll have my alpha strike ready again yeah. before he has his massive resist ready again. Uh, you know, that's not. I mean, I think most people would rather have a PvP experience with a little more fluid than that. Yeah. It's not everything's bound to the one key, and I'm waiting for my cooldown to come back. It's like, well, while I'm waiting for my cooldown, I've got a variety of other powers I could mm-hmm. be using to Ex- plink away at it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting that you bring up power creep because we we did talk about this. I think it was sometime last year that wh- whether whether power creep is sort of a naturally occurring uh, phenomenon in a game like this, and I kind of think it is because. Oh, okay, yeah, so is. I'll use the example of you know the amount of ships that have been coming out <laughs> is like ridiculous. I mean, it's compounded by the fact that we're looking at console and PC, but. Uh, you know, for a commercial model for a game like this, which is free to play or it's sort of freemium, um, you need to have something that is compelling for people to buy. And in order for something to be compelling for people to want to work towards or to buy, it's got to be better than the last thing. So there is going to be an, an, an amount of power creep. Um, have we just reached the limit that we now need to rebalance so that there's space again? Because how much, how can they? Can they just keep making more better things? <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where we go. That's probably a really good point. Something's just occurred to me. Actually, hmm. I wonder if um, one of the reasons they're doing this now is because they're probably thinking about the next expansion, which would probably be end game level. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Possibly yeah, since we've tier just had a seven recruit. ships. Ooh, uh, he said no. it. He said it. No. Level cap no. increase. Oh, I said it. <laughs> no, no, I can't. No, you know, there could be something. If, if it was a level cap increase, I would. I can't see them doing a rebalancing. I can't see it because that would be that would sort of take care of the problem by mm-hmm. sort of kicking the can down the road a little bit. You could the power creep wouldn't be a problem because it would just be power creepier. Yeah, we'll just creep it a little long, a little farther. I think they're trying to delay needing tier 7 ships and a level cap increase mm-hmm. because they want to be able to compress what we have now into something maybe two thirds the size of what we have and then work with that one third that's left to you know have some more starships have some additional additional click powers and consoles mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of stuff so they I think I think that this is more of a, a, a measure to delay that mm-hmm. rather than in anticipation of doing it soon it may be on the whiteboard. Maybe I yeah. mean maybe it, maybe maybe Winters is right. Maybe it's on the whiteboard now. They're like, well, we're going to have to do it at some point. Yeah. But rather than you know now or next expansion, let's do it two or three expansions from now. Yeah. And if we do a rebalance here, we can we can put that off. Yeah. That seems reasonable to me. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out um, was that we've actually done a mini version of rebalancing and 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 not in pretty recent history. So when we did the skill tree revamp last year. Gosh, that's got to be nearly a year ago. 
um, we did a little mini version of that because a lot of the old skills were combined yeah. and, and changed and they did a little bit of rebalancing if you recall with the between the, the damage drop off with cannons and beams that sort of thing and actually um, we've kind of adapted and been fine with that so even though it's a little scary for somebody to come out and say hey, we're rebalancing um, I think actually for the majority of players we're going to see uh, a net improvement in in gameplay yeah, I, I think most people are not going to see much let me put it, most people okay i'm putting you know i'm i'm adopting elijah's silent majority thing here okay <laughs> watch out everybody watch yeah. out everybody watch out here it comes i just i just triggered some alarm someplace but uh but i think if like i said if the, if the model is to compress the range of, of powers and abilities down to about two-thirds of what it is right now yep. the people at the top end are going to be furious yeah. The ones that have spec'd out their ships to the 150k damage, mm-hmm. congratulations, you're now at 90. Okay? Yeah. Now you're, and you're not getting to 150. Oh, ever they're going to have to retier the DPS leagues again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. That's gonna. That's the thing's going to happen. But guys like me who have not parsed their combat since they were doing since since 5k was okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's that's how long ago I cared wow. about that. Wow. Yeah. That, hey, uh, that dates me. Right. Okay. So I mean, but that's but. I'm not going to see a, a, a lick of difference. They're not going to. My stuff's not going to get messed with at all because mm. I'm not going to see a thing. But it's the folks that are up there at the, at the top end of the DPS ranges. Those are the ones that are going to see their 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 spike damage compressed. They're going to see their shield heals and their uh, uh, hull reinforcements not as effective because they want to make. I think they do want to make some room before they have to go to tier seven and a level cap increase. That brings us to our next community question. What are you hoping for or afraid of from these balance changes? Let us know in our feedback section at priority1podcast.com forward slash PO307. Well, if you can remember way back at the end of 2016, we had executive producer Stephen Rocosa on to talk about the highs and lows of last year and what was coming for this year. He told us then that they were currently playtesting a new ground event that would debut soon, TM. As it turns out, soon was actually last week. Sadly, it missed our news cycle here at Priority One, and we can only talk about it in past tense, which is doubly weird because at the time of recording this episode, it's only just started. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Now, this event was something a bit new for Star Trek Online. Set in a Klingon holodeck, it's up to you and your team to survive as long as possible against never-ending waves of enemies and environmental hazards. Depending on your performance, you were rewarded with varying prizes. So why do we cover this event after the fact? Well, because these events have a nasty habit of returning if they're successful. See Into the Breach and the Crystalline Cataclysm. And since this is a ground event that was ostensibly designed to take advantage of the new balanced ground gameplay, there's a good likelihood we'll see it back sometime in the future. Well, when we had Steve on that time, he uh, specifically said that they were going to run this event over a weekend mm-hmm. and see what the feedback is like. And if it's well received, then they would potentially turn it into an event like the Crystalline event or the Mirror mm-hmm. Universe event. Yeah, well, we've complained in the past that there's kind of a lack of a ground event. Yeah. Um, and the, and so this would be a perfect, what you know, what Al Rivera calls a tentpole event, you know, between major uh, featured episodes coming out or the, the major releases. seasonal events or the releases. Yeah. Um, you can put these things in, uh, you know, for a weekend and do do something with them. So, And we've seen it before. The, um, the, the one with the big Voth ship is a, is a good example. Well, and the crystalline you said before. So 
it's a shame that we <laughs> we didn't know about it early enough in advance to be able to do anything with it for this episode. But um, have you played it, Winters? I have indeed. I haven't had a chance to play it yet. I've probably seen both sides of the scale when it comes to this queue. I've it's not working a hundred percent right, mm-hmm. and I've I've been in a couple of missions where uh, it, it was you know drastically at one end of the scale. Like I'll give you an example: we were in one for two hours, and we only got like twenty four levels. We okay. were sitting around for like two, three, maybe four minutes. Well, no, four minutes is a bit of a stretch. Two or three minutes in between levels with no enemies. Right. But then we've had the other side of it where it worked perfectly. There was just a couple of seconds between each level and mm. like we played an hour and 30 minutes and we got up to level 53. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've experienced both sides of it. I'm not entirely convinced that this could be a good cue for one of those tentpole events mm. because of, well, I'm sure they have something thought out, but with the amount of time that you have to invest the ultimate goal would have to be to reach a very low number of levels mm. to complete the queue. I mean, they can't turn this into an event and you know you can just keep on going on as long as you can and you get a, a special item and you collect 14 of those items and then that's it, you get you know the project filled. Yeah, yeah. Because an hour and 30 minutes mm-hmm. is far too long for something like that. Yeah. Um, a single event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah a, a single instance. Yeah, it's... it's far too much what they need is this to last about 10 minutes like yeah we've heard from the days before that the crystalline entity is far too quick mm-hmm. and then they have the breach which is the voth event on the other side of it which is 20 to 25 minutes yeah far too long the- ah wait wait no 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 on contrary oh. mon ami one hang on one, I mean, that, no, no, let's not here. get off topic yeah, yeah. by no, the no, way no boys. no I'm on, I'm on topic this okay. is on topic yep. this is on topic no i i think that the happy medium is should be about 20 minutes right because i think there needs to be a spot where you're like you say look 10 minutes is maybe a little too fast 25 minutes maybe a little too long the happy medium should be around 20 if you have an awesome group and you got it done in 15 that's swell if you have a crappy group and you have to hang around a little while it's maybe 25 no but I think no no oh oh, completely characterically disagree with you 100% on that okay All right. now go why is that why what's the difference between 10 and 20 if your idea if your ideal is 10 and my ideal is 20 right well, oh, well first, okay. first of all, <laughs> I stand corrected. Okay. <laughs> first of all, all right. uh, it doesn't matter how good your team is on the Voth event or the Into the Breach event. It doesn't matter how good your team is. You are going to be in there for a minimum of 20 minutes, probably 25 minutes. Mm. It could go even longer. There is nothing you can do to speed it up, which is the opposite to the Crystalline Entity. You have a great team. You could be done in minutes. Yeah. Yeah, like, like five, like three. Like less, yeah. yeah. Okay? Yeah. It can yeah. be done if you have a really good team. The other thing is, uh, a lot of people like to do these events on their alt characters, and 20 minutes is far uh, too long. Mm, you okay? have to be scrolling mm, through It's your far mm. too long. And I, yes. I think a nice happy medium is you have the crystalline entity at one end of the scale at about five minutes per run. You have the Voth at 20 too long, 10 minutes in the middle, nice happy medium. 
at the end of the day, this is something that, admittedly, even even Cryptic has admitted that there are bugs in it, and it isn't perfect yet. I imagine we'll come back and we'll see it in another um, in another iteration. Um, but this type of I want to address one thing that you said earlier, Winters, which was about um, the sort of endlessness of it and how long it's going to take to do. Now, this is something that has been missing in Star Trek Online that is actually present in a number of other games, especially really big games, MMOs or, you know, uh, epic RPGs, is that whole endless dungeon challenge. And there isn't anything like that in Star Trek Online that you can do sort of this endless thing where you keep getting rewards and you can keep playing, etc., etc. There's things like the battle zones where you can play them over and over again, but yep. there's not like a there's not like a scaling thing, which is what I understand the arena to be. They yep. pres- progressively get more difficult as you go. It's like a ground version of Norman's scenario. It just keeps yeah, going. Exactly. And so I think from that perspective, in terms of unique gameplay and adding something really unique into the game, there's a tremendous amount of potential here that I would like to see come back. As I said, I'm not sold on this particular queue being converted into one of those events. Mm. I'm, I'm just not sold on yeah. it. But I do think it is a very good queue and it should be left in the game permanently. I gotcha. So right. not as an event. Not as an, but, as an event. Because but as something that you can go play. Yeah. Especially if you're talking that model, Kevin. Like one that's, you know, the, the forever model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. because what you because theoretically what you'd want to happen is that some night you got, you know, you got a couple hours to set aside and do nothing and you get a queue with either your bunch of people you know or yeah. a bunch of, you know, pug people. And then for some reason something just clicks and you guys are just like, holy crap, we're at 50. How'd that happen? Yeah. Holy crap, we're at 60. How'd that happen? Yeah. You just, it's like... That, that's the kind of gameplay experience you're looking for, then it's got to be on all the time because you never know when that synergy is going to exactly. hit. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So if that's what they're looking for, this can't be a tentpole thing. It's got to be always there. Yeah. Okay. One last thing before we finish with this that I want to bring up. I am also not impressed with the rewards for this mission either. I think mm-hmm. it is woefully under-rewarding for the amount of time invested. And mm-hmm. I'll give an example. You can go to a battle zone... Uh, I'm going to use a ground battle zone as an example, Dyson Sphere. And you can spend an hour there and come out with about 500 marks. Yeah. I've spent an hour and 30 minutes, got to level 53, and I got 125 marks. Yeah. For one hour and 30 minutes. Do you think that's because... I can ratchet up. Do you think that's because a lot... The other sort of tentpole events that we've talked about, the Crystalline Cataclysm and the... Um, uh, into the breach, people played them before they then made it into an event, and they could sort of balance it correctly. I know we've talked about balancing a lot. Do you think they made an error in just launching it straight into an event? I think that they were erring on the side of caution, knowing, mm. like as Tony pointed out there a minute ago, they can always ramp it up. But I just wanted to highlight that it is. I mean, you talk about. Um, time as the currency you know they want um uh for the cheeks and seats cheeks and seats the amount of time you play you get x amount of reward this is woefully under rewarding yeah and if people are not getting anything out of it for you know sitting in a chair for an hour and 30 minutes battling endless waves of enemies and they only get 125 marks out of it Mm -hmm. it's very low People yep. will get fed up of it very, very quickly and say, this is just not worth it. I can do so much better playing other content. Okay, well, that wraps it up this week for Star Trek Online News. 
Now let's head to the Astrometrics Lab with our science advisor, Dr. Robert Hurt. All right, everybody, welcome to another Astrometrics Report. Uh, with us in the studio, once again, is Dr. Robert Hurt of JPL. Hey, what's up, Doc? Hey, well, if you guys were paying attention to the news yesterday, you might have heard a little story that started going around that I'm here to talk about today. Oh, yeah, well, what makes you so smart? How come you're such an authority, Dr. Robert Hurt, <laughs> if that's your real name? Who are you and why are you so smart about this? Well, for, uh, those of us, for those of us who don't know yet. <laughs> so uh, it so happens that the uh, the astronomy story of the winter, at least, if not the year, happens to come from a result that uh, is tied to NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope, which astute listeners might recall is the mission that I actually work on uh, ah. at the uh, Spitzer Science Center at Caltech. And it's the mission for which I do a lot of the science visualization work. So... Uh, the story that hit the press this week that I wanted to talk about uh, is the, uh, it's actually the cover story of Nature this week. And it is the discovery of a planetary system with not one, not two, but seven Earth sized worlds situated around a star in a way that um, while three of them fall within what we would traditionally call the habitable zone, uh, it, it turns out that uh, conditions are such that it's possible that depending on conditions, liquid water could exist on any or all of them. So this is just a plethora of possible Earths to play with. Wow. So now you said seven Earth-sized worlds. Correct. Uh, can, can you can you define size for us? What's the size mean? Uh, size is in you know the diameter of these planets is uh, within the range of twenty five percent smaller up to about ten percent bigger than the Earth. So uh, so pretty close. Pretty close. So, you know, uh, diameter wise, length wise. Now, does that tell us about the mass? Do we know about how heavy they are? Indeed. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the process, and I'll uh, let me in fact start off that. Um, uh, my involvement in this particular release is once this result came in back in November, we realized this was going to be a really, really big thing, and we pitched it to NASA yeah. headquarters as a press conference, and they absolutely eagerly jumped on it. And so for the last couple of months, my uh, colleague Tim Pyle and I have been busily putting together uh, a big package of graphics and video to go along and really help explain this result. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty deeply entrenched in this one. Wasn't on the research team uh -huh. uh, for the paper, though a couple of my colleagues at work were actually. But uh, we've, had, uh, we've had a lot of fun times getting ready for this crazy thing. And the cover of Nature, this actually happened to be my first piece of artwork that I got onto the cover of Nature. So, uh, Oh, congratulations. Personal first there. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great looking picture. Uh, you know, for those of you on the podcast, uh, we'll have a link in our show notes to the nature cover so you can see. But it's basically the red dwarf star with the planets lined up on it. It's very cool, very slick. Uh, you'll, it's it, it's great, it's great, uh, great views. Check it out. But yeah, so uh, you were on, you were on the art team. You've got videos. You've got pictures. You're on the cover of Nature. Uh, what do we see? Well, I, I should say that um, when the Spitzer mission, when Spitzer first launched back in 2003. One of our dreams is that someday we would have a story, a, a press release that would come out about some Spitzer result that was uh, exciting enough it would end up not only in the New York Times, but hopefully on the cover of the New York Times above the fold. 
And above the fold. Today, I, I went to my local Barnes and Noble and purchased today's New York Times with the Trappist One system printed above the fold. So it took it oh. took over a dozen years, but but we did it. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Well done. Persistence. Yeah. And did you walk through the Barnes and Noble just showing it to everybody, going? I'm on the front of the New York Times. Did you know that I'm on the front of the New York Times? I did this. It was <laughs> tempting. Uh, it was probably more more like it was all I could do to not like start tearing up when the uh, when the the person uh, the girl at the counter actually gave me the copy. I'm like, oh. but uh, yeah, it was it was it was Forever. pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and and again for those of the for those of you at home, if you've played the game Elite Dangerous, the cover of the New York Times picture, the Trappist One system is set up exactly like the planetary maps. There, it's the big sun on the left. And then little little dots, little worlds, little with individualized characteristics of you know red, green, brown clouds. It's really gorgeous. So we'll put a link on the show notes to that too. So what was what's really cool about this is that you know there are a couple of different ways, a few different ways we have of detecting exoplanets. But by far the most prolific method is the one employed by, for instance, the Kepler mission, which we basically stare at a star and we look for tiny little repeating dips in the brightness of the star. And these dips occur whenever the planet interposes itself between us and the star. If, it, if the system happens to be you know, just in the right alignment, which most of them won't be. But you know there are a lot of stars out there, and so if you look at enough of them, occasionally you'll find some where the planetary system is lined up just right. Now, the mm-hmm. TRAPPIST-1 system was actually first announced last year in a, a big news release uh, because of the ground-based TRAPPIST telescope that had discovered it, which was studying nearby uh, small, uh, ultra-cool dwarf stars. These are M-dwarf stars that are um, they're, they're basically about as small as you can get and actually still be a, a star, still be able to create fusion. But these are interesting because they are actually very, very numerous, and the planets, if they existed around such stars, would tend to be in very close orbits, which means they would orbit repeatedly and rapidly, which means they would transit a lot, and which means they'd be basically a lot easier to detect. So when the TRAPPIST-1 system was first discovered, it was uh, known to have at least three planets. And the, uh, but because of the, the, the cadence of ground observation, what they really needed is a much longer set of observations in order to uh, really come up with sort of the Rosetta Stone for the transits and make sure they, they knew how many were there. Um, so uh, the Spitzer mission, which entered its final sort of Spitzer Beyond phase this uh, uh, this past fall, its actual first project in the uh, Spitzer Beyond mission, which was sort of our final uh, stint of observations that will lead up to hopefully the launch of James Webb Space Telescope and even overlap with that for a while, was to spend uh, over 20 days staring at the TRAPPIST-1 system, hopefully to find out a little bit more about the three or maybe four planets that, that might end up being there. Well. Uh, what happened, what Spitzer saw, was just a whole forest of little dips in light uh, at, separated by you know, a day or less, over and over and over again. And it, by having such a long, sort of unbroken uh, data set, except for the occasional data downlinks to Earth, it was actually enough data to sit down and disentangle and figure out that the, uh, the, the transits were coming from a total of seven different planets in the system. Now, the uh, depth of the uh, uh, the dip, you know, the, the amount of light reduction, which in this case is, for exoplanets, these 
reductions are pretty huge. They, they were up to like over 2% of the light of the star occurred because the star itself is really small. It's only a little bit bigger than the planet Jupiter. And then the planets passing in front of it are all about the size of the Earth. So because you basically, when you measure the depth, the, uh, the amount of light that gets reduced, you can then calculate immediately exactly how big the planets are. And so, you know, the, the deeper the dip, the bigger the planet. And then you sort of do the math and you sort of figure it out. By the timing of how frequently they pass in front of the star, you know the period of the orbit, and then from the, the, the star and the period, you can figure out how far away the planet is, which then tells you how much light, how much energy comes from the star and falls on the planet, which tells you something about its uh, potential for habitability. Now, the cool extra special sauce that Spitzer brought to the mix was because uh, Spitzer is incredibly sensitive to the light from, uh, from small, uh, uh, ultra-cool red dwarfs, uh, which actually put out most of their light in the infrared, not the visible part of the spectrum. That's where Spitzer actually works. Uh, Spitzer was so precise in its observations that not only was it able to detect the timing of the transits as the planet passed in front of the star, but slight variations in the timing where they showed up a little early or a little late, uh, just enough that you could then use that information fold it into another set of calculations and start to estimate what the actual masses of the planets are. Now this is something that is exciting because ah. this is something you don't normally yeah. get to do. Right. Yeah, because the, the distance is involved and you basically use up all your observational data just getting the size of the planet lengthwise. Uh, you know, the, the, the wiggles that the gravitational forces are usually drowned out in that because of the distances involved. Exactly. But not here. You know, not here. So often, you know, the exoplanet transiting systems we find only have, you know, one or two or maybe three planets, and they tend to be a lot more distantly spaced from one another. So the actual mm-hmm. gravitational tugs on them are going to be very, very subtle, and any timing variations will be so slight. You know, you, you'd literally need years of observations yeah. to start to right. figure that out instead of, you know, days, which we got from Spitzer. So as a result, not only do we have this population of planets with their, their, uh, the size of their orbits and their distances and their radiuses. We also know roughly what their masses are, which then when you combine the size with the mass, you get a sense of a density. And this becomes our first measurement of what the composition might be. It's a very rough estimate, but you can look at the difference between a planet that has a higher density of the Earth versus a lower density and start to make some arguments about what might happen in terms of composition. If it has a lower density, for instance, it might have a much higher fraction of things like water on its surface. Mm-hmm. Water being a lot less massive you know, per unit volume than you know, rocks. So, uh, so you know, digging into that story and going down the planets, which are very creatively named Trappist 1, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H, uh, because that's how we name ah. things in astronomy. Uh, we sort of went through the system, and then, in fact, one of the things that uh, Tim Pyle and I did gearing up for this is uh, uh, head up discussing with scientists how it is we wanted to visualize each of these planets to give a, uh, a sort of a plausible model, far from unique model, of it, but maybe one plausible model of what each planet could be given the conditions that we know. So um, working very closely with uh, Michael Guillon, who is the uh, principal investigator at the University of Liege in Belgium, and uh, his, uh, uh, some of his co-authors, including uh, Sean Carey at the Spitzer Science Center, who's the, the manager of the Spitzer Project, who's also on the paper, we sort of went through and we, we identified a set of sort of uh, um, imagined 
types of planets you can have. Uh, for the innermost planet, we modeled it roughly on, say, the, the Jupiter's moon Io, which is very volcanic, uh, subject to tidal mm -hmm. forces. The moving out to sea was more of a rocky world uh, that has a very small ice cap potentially on the backside, and I'll, I'll get back to that. Uh, D, E, F all had varying amounts of water. G was done as like a mini Neptune, and H is an ice ball. Now, the thing that's kind of cool about this system is because these planets are so close to their star, the tidal forces from the star are actually going to be very strong and very likely strong enough to lock the planets in a way that they will always face the star during their orbit, the, the same way the moon always presents wow. the same face to the Earth. Mm -hmm. So by being tidally locked, it actually changes the rule book entirely on what habitable means. Right? Uh, the classic definition of a habitable zone is how far away from the star could you put a planet like the Earth and expect water to uh, be able to be liquid on its surface? And that's assuming that the planet is spinning on its axis and its temperature is more or less you know, equilibriated around the whole planet. But if you have a tidally locked planet, one side is always going to face the star and the other side is always going to be away from it. So these planets are actually going to have a much larger temperature gradient running from the sun side to the night side than anything that we see in our inner solar system, really. Back in the day, they actually thought Mercury was tidally locked. But it turns out it actually does rotate slowly uh, with respect to its orbit. So as a result, if the uh, surface conditions are right, if, if the, there's an, enough of the right volatiles on these planets, it's actually possible to construct a scenario that liquid water could exist on any or all of these, just you know, in, with, with the right arrangements. So we, we right. sort of came up with a... a panoply of visualizations for this that showed uh, the, the possibility of an ice cap on the back of the, uh, the, the, the close-in world C. Uh, on the D world, we came up with a uh, what had kind of been dubbed an eyeball planet, where you sort of have a dry day side under the, the, the heat of the sun, a cold icy night side, and right around the terminator of the planet, dividing night from day, a little bit of transition where the ice can melt and maybe pool into water before it evaporates and you know, snows back out on the night side. Right. Uh, ENF both had relatively low densities. The, the mass measurements for them are actually uh, quite low, uh, even though their diameter is very close to the size of the Earth. And so uh, the model for that became two worlds that could have, you know, huge oceans, like, you know, tens, hundreds of kilometers thick, perhaps, of, of liquid water. So we showed those as basically big balls of water with ice caps. Uh, G being the largest one, uh, potentially could have the densest atmosphere, so it was shown more as a sort of a tiny analog of Neptune. And H being the furthest out, we sort of came up with sort of an ice ball modeled on Europa. So on D, E, and F, you're, um, those assumptions that, you know, it's right there in the middle, the, quote, Goldilocks zone, the idea would be that if there's enough of an atmosphere, whether that's constructed of gases or, like you are saying for ENF, especially liquids, there might be enough energy circulating around it so that liquid water might exist on, on all sides, but maybe some of it's covered with an ice cap on the night side. Maybe the, the temperatures on, on, the, on the tidally locked day side creep around to the backside, maybe? Um, right, right. the medium of the atmosphere? Okay. Exactly. And for instance, D. So, uh, so Although the planet D is uh, technically too close to its star to be considered habitable, the fact is the backside is actually going to be incredibly cold because it will never face the sun, while the day side will be very, very hot. And so the idea that there's some place 
intermediate, somewhere between the day and night side, where the temperature would be, you know, as they say, just right for liquid water to exist. We, we placed that in the artwork right around the, uh, the Terminator so you could kind of see the water. Uh, but you know, where it would actually be would depend a lot on how thick the atmosphere was and the airflow patterns and things like that. But it's really cool to have planets that, because of it being tidally locked, it might actually change our definition of what habitable would be. Right, right, and, and may it be habitable around that ring, around the, the terminus, the Terminator ring, but the rest of it might be completely uninhabitable, uh, according to what we would call human standards, anyway. Exactly. So you're saying that depending on what the measurement, what the atmospheres turn out to be, that's something that the follow-up mission might be looking at. The James Webb Telescope you were mentioning earlier, uh, from exactly okay. the uh, so. Uh, let me uh, actually let me. I'll get to that question in a second. Let okay. me let me just say one other gee whiz thing. The uh, the because the other thing about this system that's so just unspeakably cool, I think, is that the other thing is when you look at the close separations of these planets, the fact that the distances between their orbits are actually more in line with the distances between the orbits of the moons of Jupiter, rather than you know our the planets in our system. That they are so close together that. If you were actually on the surface of one of these planets, looking up at your neighboring planets as they were making their closest approaches, hmm. you would actually see your neighboring planets, in some cases, to be larger in the sky than we see the moon to be in our sky. Imagine being on a planet where you can look up and look at your neighboring planet and with binoculars be able to make out continents and features, wow. just even with your naked eye. That's it, serious sci-fi right there. It but is not fi. sci-fi. It's the sci-fi <laughs> without the fi. But that's cool. And even if, uh, and if, you know, if we were there somehow and we had even just our existing level of technology, the idea that you could, you know, fly between planets in days rather than months like it takes in our system. So uh, you had it on your, on your chart you had up a little while ago. Um, they were uh, distances there. So our, the distance between the two closest ones, um, of course, that will change because they're rotating, but they're on their closest approach they would come closer than you're saying from earth to the moon or is it just that their relative sizes just maybe they appear, it would appear closer than the earth to the moon is it, it they, they, they would it would appear yeah because they're you know several times larger than the moon okay but and they're several times further apart than we are from the moon so but yeah the, the proportion of their distance to their radius is such that they'd end up looking about the size of the moon in the sky so we're talking a few a few million miles not a few hundred million miles exactly Exactly. Right. So, but to, back to your question, though, on um, follow-up missions, right? Yeah. What Spitzer has done and what uh, uh, the, the ground-based telescopes that have been following this up on uh, um, both in the discovery and, you know, in conjunction with Spitzer data and, and, in fact, ongoing observations, because obviously this is a really cool place worth learning more about. Um, that's all about refining our size measurements and the timing measurements and our, our mass estimates. But what you really want to do is go back and examine these systems very carefully at different wavelengths of light and see if the apparent size of the planet changes a little bit. Because what you can start to do is, is actually look for hints of a little bit of the chemistry of what might be going on in the atmosphere by looking for uh, things like, say, hydrogen gas, which hydrogen will block light at certain wavelengths. And at those wavelengths, the planet might actually appear to be a little bigger if it had an envelope of hydrogen gas around it. And then at other wavelengths where the hydrogen is transparent, the planet, you'd only be the, the rocky part, the only part that would block your view. So 
Hubble had actually begun a program of exploring the innermost two planets last year, where they found no evidence of, of hydrogen, which is really the only thing they can look for right now, which by finding they did not see any hydrogen envelope around them, actually reinforces the idea that these are rocky worlds, not just you know gas balls or something. Uh, Hubble will continue these observations, but eventually when the James Webb Space Telescope launches, uh, it will actually be very well suited to start to look at some of the hints of chemistry in these atmospheres and maybe give us a hint of some of the composition. And then, you know, if we can start pointing out at anything, like either ruling out certain molecule species or, or, or finding certain ones, then we can really start to say more about what these planets could actually be like. We're expecting to find some sort of gas envelope around at least the three in the middle. Right? That would be the expectation because of the temperatures and the distances. Yes. We're just wondering what, might, what those might be. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, there, I mean, there are so many questions, and uh, in, in part, some of it comes down to simply, um, uh, does it have the right composition? Does it have the right, did, did the right things get delivered to these planets when they formed? You know, right. there, did, was there mm-hmm. cometary, cometary bombardment that delivered volatiles or, or something else, right? Uh, uh, did they form elsewhere in the system and migrate in and sweep up material as they came in? You know, there's, there's so much we don't know right. about their formation and the process that, uh, that, Again, any little piece of information, we can start to rule out lots and lots of things and converge on more likely mm-hmm. models of what they could be. Cool. And I see we have a new a new uh, picture up on our screen here. The, uh, those of you who visit us in Las Vegas would remember Dr. Hertz's uh, uh, travel plans, uh, uh, travel agency uh, posters. And so we've got he's he's created another one uh, here for for, tra- for Trappist One. Well, I wish I could. I, I so. can't take personal credit for this. This is part of the uh, JPL. No? Uh, JPL actually has a uh, a separate group of really talented artists who work on illustrating a lot of the science results and the exoplanet results coming mm-hmm. out of JPL in general. And so uh, they've developed this entire series of exoplanet travel posters that have been coming out over the years. So uh, I actually did work closely with the art team on this. Uh, they. Uh, we, some of the teleconferences we had with Mikhail Guillaume and, and the other scientists, uh, we were all part of that conversation because in part we wanted to make sure that the graphics that JPL were developing were, were going to be consistent with the graphics that were coming out of the Spitzer Science Center and that you know, we're all telling the same story. But they came up with mm-hmm. a very, very evocative um, illustration for this system that really sells the idea of, of a planetary system with nearby neighbors that are just you know just inviting you to planet hop from one world to the next and they added in a little bit of uh, they added in a little bit of uh, star trek font just to make it extra on target but imagine if you know uh, this is totally going into the realm of fantasy land but you know you, you've said that these objects would be pretty big in the night sky um if you were standing on the surface of somebody in the middle for instance um, just imagine if there was life on several of these planets and you could actually look up and see the evidence of other civilizations on another planet and you would just take it for granted. I mean, the the idea of that is so sci-fi and so cool that it's just, it really captures your imagination. Yeah, it really is. The, uh, the fact that for instance, it took uh, Galileo observing the phases of Venus and of Mercury uh, to, to start to develop observational support for the Copernican system. That there was the, the idea that when we looked at our planets, we just see dots of light. But 
it but when Galileo could say hey look Venus becomes a crescent you know we never we only see it fully illuminated when it's tiny because it's on the other side of the sun when it's uh, uh, back there and and geometrically you could look at that and all of a sudden you say oh yeah I, I see how that works by holding a you know a ball up around a, a, a candlelight right but if you were on a system like this, you'd look up and you would totally get it. Like, oh yeah, those are other balls inside, and, and then I have other planets, you know, that have larger orbits than us, and they're on the outside, and you know, it'd just be a, a daily thing that you would just know. There was a, a book by Isaac Asimov, I think it's called Nightfall, and it's the opposite of this. It's a planetary system with multiple suns and one inhabited planet, and there's it never it never goes night. And it basically, uh, except like in one, once every few hundred or thousand years or whatever, and the whole world burns. Like civilization just falls because no one's ever seen the night sky before and it drives everybody insane. And so it's the, it, there's a story of these scientists that are going, hey, we're about to have another one of these you know, events, wonder what's going on. And these scientists who look up in the sky and go, wait a minute, those are stars. And those stars pr- produce light and, oh, they're all going to be on this side over here and that means there's not going to be any light from them. That's going to be weird. We got to do something about that. And so you have that perspective of always knowing that there's other planets, or always not even understanding that the stars are stars. I mean, it's just, it is mind kind of mind boggling. And someone should write yeah. this story now. And we need another yeah. Asimov to write the, the opposite story. Well, there's there's so many interesting things about this system that you could really latch on to tell the story. One of which is the fact that this is such a small, uh, dim star that. Um, you know, most of the energy that heats the planets is actually coming in the infrared part of the spectrum. Uh, from a visible light point of view, it actually would be very, very faint light on these planets, even on the day side. By our eyes, used to the illumination we get under the sun, uh, we would see it as very, very faint. Uh, you know, the, the color of the light we calculated would have the, the, the look of, say, a very low wattage light bulb. But, you know, it's like if the star, if our sun were a really low wattage light bulb, really dark, (laughs) dimly illuminated, and kind of that warm orangish salmon kind of tone to it. That's what the day sides of these planets would be like. But in the same sense that you wouldn't, with our eyes, you wouldn't see much light, you would feel much more heat coming off the sun. It It would be a very, very different sensation. And of course, if you were evolved on these planets, native creatures, odds are what they called visible light would be completely different than what we call visible. They would probably have eyes that are adapted to see infrared, and it would, they would have a whole different experience. I'm sensing kind of a Superman-Predator hybrid here, you know, with the, with the heat vision, but he's around a red star. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm getting here. So we, could, we should probably avoid that system for the near future. We should just stay back. I, 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 did, I did pitch the idea that, uh, look, you've got, like, you know, potentially habitable planet, uh, maybe a big ice cap on back that you could have a little ice city on, red star. Yeah, this could yeah. be Krypton's home system, yeah, you know, could close be. enough that the the, the 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 spaceship could probably get to Earth without too much trouble. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah, you need it. You need I'm, like I'm a, hearing the John Williams score in my head right now. I'm, I'm thinking uh, <laughs> you're right. I'm thinking you're right. This this is definitely a possibility. And you said one of them was you know the close to one end that might have just the terminus. Like that that could be it because it's real delicate, you know. Like there could have been a yep. cataclysm of some kind that could have upset the balance. Yeah, I think I think we found it. I think we found Krypton. This is probably what it is. <laughs> if we're lucky, it's not the Predator world with the infrared vision. That could be bad. Yeah. Hey, so can I ask a dumb question? Uh, there are no dumb questions. Ah, oh, see. We'll see about yeah, that. Yeah, you fell into the trap. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't heard it yet. Um. So where's where's Trappist One A? Oh. Uh, 
That's okay. That isn't a dumb question. That, uh, the only thing that's dumb about that question is how dumb astronomers are and how we name things. Trappist right. one A is the actual name of the star. Oh. Because in historically, when we would name stars in the sky, we would see one point of light and we would give it a name. Then with right. powerful telescopes, we might split light and realize, oh, there's actually one or two or three stars, like a double star. And then when we realized that what we called a star was really a double star, then we started saying it's like, well, that's Alpha Centauri A and B, or Sirius A and B. And so we started to use letters to split up the things that we didn't notice with our eye when we looked at it. And right. for some completely incomprehensible reason to me, when we first started discovering exoplanets, we extended the nomenclature for naming stars to exoplanets. And so okay. there are actually some crazy situations where we have some systems where maybe we have we have double stars. So you have, I, I forget the, the name of the particular examples, but there are some where we know it's a double star. So those two stars are something A and something B. And then the first exoplanet is something C. And right. whereas another system, the B isn't a star, it's an exoplanet. So... Yeah, astronomers are really notoriously bad at nomenclature. <laughs> they, this is not Star Trek at all. I'm disappointed. Well, yeah, because it should be Trappist 1. It should be Trappist 1, 1. Right. And then Trappist 1, 2, but Roman numerals 1 yeah. and yeah. 2. Star Trek <laughs> yeah. had it right, except now we can't call yeah. it. So now we can't do M class anymore because we've got the, the planet with the M classes only in the strip on the Terminator. So that would be like a like yeah. a, a lowercase m class or like a, a l class. I don't know. I mean, yeah. You know, back during the back during the um, uh, NASA's uh, sorry uh, Star Trek's fiftieth anniversary. Uh, you know, uh, JPL was actually involved in uh, trying to do some things to, to reference that. You know, we, we you know Spitzer we actually put out sort of the, the Enterprise Nebula picture. But yeah. one of the things that JPL did is they were trying to go through our catalog of exoplanets and apply Star Trek nomenclatures to them and you know the, the class l uh demon class class mm -hmm. m but it turned out it, it was it was a very very dubious enterprise if you will because it, it, it's so hard the way it was so nice and neat of this is habitable and this is almost habitable right we don't one have enough information and two even the whole question becomes like weird like well okay part of this planet has a really ridiculously hot region part of it is ridiculously cold part of it is just right what is the class of the planet if it's all of them you know just depending on where you are physically on it so nature is far more tedious and complicated when it comes to these things than uh, than our nomenclatures support i'm afraid it's like they resist putting themselves in a neat little boxes for us to put on. Uh, uh, you know, I just wish the nature would be a little more organized, please. I mean, that'd be nice. Uh, and Thanks. I also wish astronomers would start naming things with a little more forward thinkingness to their their uh, how they start choosing their because then, of course, years later we have to come back and fix it all, and it results in things like, uh, yeah, Pluto really shouldn't have been called a planet, but now we have to suffer a lot of grief over that. So, <laughs> oh, dude, don't open that box. Uh, not here, not here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Robert Hurd, thanks for coming on board with us and sharing another Astrometrics report and over this really exciting development. And uh, we'll have you back on for sure the next time you guys discover something completely mind-blowing like, like this. 
Absolutely, and and as as a parting thought, uh, while I, I there aren't necessarily a lot of Star Trek worlds we can connect to this. I, if any of your viewers have watched that other show that Joss Whedon did, thinking mm. about a, a solar system yep. that humanity colonizes with several habitable planets that you could zip around from one to another in your Firefly class ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you can't we, take we this guy have, from me. Can't take this guy from me. We we, we we may have discovered the verse. We may so. have it. We may have it right here. It's got to have some neighbors. It's got some close neighbors with other planets. But yeah, we may have this. Mm. Is this yep. is this is definitely a candidate. Uh, so we do have one quick community question. That's a really good one that I'd I'd like to you to have a crack at before we go. Uh, James Sillet on Facebook has asked. My only question is, what are the chances that there is life, and how long will it take to find out? So this is, of course, the question we always are curious about as astronomers, because deep down, what we're really trying to do is answer a much deeper question, which is, you know, how common is life in the universe? Now, it's a really difficult thing to get at, especially when starting off, we really know still so little about these planets. But to specifically address life in this system, uh, one thing that's interesting about the TRAPPIST-1 star is that it's actually relatively young. It's only about 500 million years old. Now, that sounds old, but you know the sun is four and a half billion years old. So you know, even if we could imagine one of these planets has, has water and the conditions that are right for life and, and life has arisen, if we look back in the history of our own Earth, that actually is you know, pretty much back at the origins of life on our own planet. So if there were life forms here it likely would be you know very primitive you know bacteria at best you uh, more like you know, diatoms or some of uh, analogs to some of the very very simplest uh, uh, forms in our system now that that's not uninteresting in the slightest though because i guess the biggest question about life in the universe is simply is is life something that happens pretty much every time you get the right mix of chemicals and water and temperature is it just something that that, that because of the nature of carbon chemistry it will just naturally arise or does it only arise in one out of 10 systems, one out of 100, or one out of a million, or one out of a trillion, right? Uh, we, have, we have a sample of one. And until we can find that second sample, and if we find that second sample, then that will tell us so much about how common life could be. It's one of the reasons why we're also so interested in looking for any hints of life that might exist at other planets in, the, in our own solar system, on, on Mars or in, you know, in Europa. Right. If, if we could find that life independently arose twice in our own solar system, that would really give us a lot of confidence that in, in pretty much any planet that, that you get the liquid water and the, so the right mix of chemicals, that you'd, you'd get life too. So, But really to start answering that, it's going to take this next generation of telescopes like James Webb to basically at least start answering some of the questions about what is in the atmospheric composition, what, uh, you know, do they have atmospheres, is it all hidden under clouds, and once we can really start to characterize a little bit of what's going on on the surface of these worlds, then we can start to then ask the next question, are there any tracers that we could associate with processes that we might associate with life, like, you know, is there an abnormally large amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. That's something on our own planet. If you took away all the life, then the oxygen on our planet would actually turn into rust and oxidize things very quickly, and then you, you would no you'd have a nitrogen atmosphere. You really wouldn't have much oxygen. So, so there are ways we can get at the question, but they're they're still still a ways off. All right, thanks, Dr. Hurt, for joining us for another astrometrics report. And now we'll open up hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. 
Well, Captains, this is the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Episode 306's first community question was, if you could have any piece of Star Trek technology today, what would it be? From the Star Trek Online forums, Tyler Maxwell wrote, You mean besides the holodeck? Well, I guess I could use a replicator to make a holodeck myself. No? Maybe a warp drive or transporter so I could go anywhere I want in style. Perhaps an android. Any variety. To do my bidding. Like make me a warp drive or a holodeck. I probably should just settle for a Kaltool set and some bottles of blood wine. Bradley Manning on Facebook commented, Being a truck driver, I have to admit that the transporter would be the technology that I would want most. Granted, it might put me out of a job, but I could always train in a different job. It would be cool to be able to go on vacation and not have to drive or fly. Just step onto a transporter pad, set the coordinates, and go. And then, and yeah, be completely disintegrated and reassembled on the other side. Basically dying and then being brought back to life. I think... It's an obvious answer, the transporter, but just think about it. I'm not actually sure we'd want to do the transporter thing. Well, he could retrain as a transporter operator. That would take care of his job problem. True. Then, you, know, you know, there's True. that. So, uh, but the whole dying thing—that sounds like it's philosophy. The, it's the we're, yeah. Oh, there's we're a not whole. Ready for that here. Yeah. We're not ready for that here. That's I it's way too late. It is way too late at night for that sort of business here. <laughs> Isn't there an actual word for the phobia of being transported? Is it transportophobia? I don't think so. No, but was it, was it in Enterprise or something? It might have been, because they actually addressed the whole getting your molecules scrambled and that actually kills you, because the guy that invented the transport went, ha ha, silly people, ha <laughs> yeah, yeah. and just kind of glossed over it. <laughs> Let's move along. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> which is which is what we're going to do here. <laughs> um, from Twitter, Aradan the Cyber Elf TM nuclear sign at the real cyber elf says seriously you need to ask the replicator it would solve so many of the world's problems yes like um like my lack of snacks yes yeah well i would have picked something like world hunger oh that as sure. well kenna yeah. kenna's just thinking of herself <laughs> it's hunger i live in the world <laughs> it counts boy that's very not politically correct i'm not really like that oh crap uh, the truth comes out. Episode 306's second community question was, does the possibility of commanding the Enterprise in VR make you more likely to buy into a VR system and Star Trek Bridge Crew VR in particular? From PartyOnPodcast.com, Mark K says, it depends on the visual quality. It has to really add, not just to the immersive experience, but also to the gameplay. Just to ooh and ah for five minutes and then be bored because the game simulation is itself meh. Won't do. Good show, P1. From Twitter, Kinius at Kinius said, Yes, it would be nice if it would tie into Star Trek Discovery. I think that might be a long shot, though, Kinius. Yeah. yeah. They, they've just got to the, the original series, <laughs> so give them a little time to catch up. And finally, from PriorityOnePodcast.com, Sean Newboy commented, Nope. Make it a Romulan ship and we can talk, though. Fun show, everyone. Well, that wraps up episode 307 of Priority One Podcast. But before we go, here are community questions for this week. What storytelling traditions of the past Star Trek series do you hope to see in the new series? And what changes are you looking forward to or are afraid of with the coming balance changes in Star Trek Online? Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or tweet us via at PriorityOnePod. 
You can even leave us a voicemail via SpeakPipe. Just click on the widget on our homepage. Don't miss a thing from the world of Star Trek. Catch our episodes every Monday morning by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our live episodes on Thursday nights at around 11pm Eastern. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, you can join us in Star Trek Online in the Priority One Armada. If you're interested, just head over to PriorityOneArmada.com and sign up today. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Priority One. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency Podcast at GuardFrequency.com. Covering the world of space sims, including Star Citizen, Elite Dangerous, Descent Underground, and many, many more. If you like this show, then listening to Guard Frequency is the logical choice. Thanks to our audio team, led by Michael McDonald, with assistance from Brandon Parker and Jake Morgan, with support from Midnight Shadow 7 of Holosuite Media. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Thanks to our associate producer, Navy Boats Lou, and most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, and our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Ready weapons. Engage. Live on Thursday, February 23rd, 2017, and available for download. <laughs> or you can even leave us a voicemail. Just click on the Speak Pipe widget on our homepage at Almost made it. Or you can even leave us a voicemail. Just click on the Speak Pipe widget at our homepage, Priority One Podcast. And it's still the No, I didn't. No. Priority One Podcast. Here we go. Welcome to our show. Blah, 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 blah. Welcome to our show. <laughs> now let's check out the no, trek out. Trek out. Oh, we don't say check out. We don't say check out. I don't say that to I'm not on this Elijah's show. head what? just exploded somewhere. <laughs> if you say if you say check, you replace it with trek, Tony. Come on. It's a thing. It's a branding thing. All right, here we go. This is Tony. Check it out. Sync one. No. Stone News. Sync one. <laughs> We're professionals. This is Kenna. Stone News. Sync two. This is Winters. Feedback. No. Intro. <laughs> no. Stone News. Sync four. Smartass. <laughs> this is Tony. Feedback. Sync one. This is Kenna. Feedback. Sync two. Hi. This is Chris Keen. Feedback. Sync four. <laughs> Feedback in three, two. 
Episode 306's first community question was, if you could have any piece of Star Trek technology today, what would it be? Winters. Oh, my name. Right. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But before we go, here are our community questions for this. Hang on. I'm sorry, I need to redo that. My phone just decided, even despite the fact that I have Do Not Disturb on, it's been vibrating. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Hang on. Hang on. Elijah, we are literally recording. And he's gone. And he's gone. (laughs) Thank you. Kenna, go. Okay. (laughs) Thanks to... Sorry. Going through puberty. Thanks to our... Wow. Sorry, I'm going to come mute myself for a second. He's going uh, to well, puberty. Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with my voice tonight. <laughs> my big boy voice just about gave out. Okay, let me try. <clears throat> shields, weapons, etc., etc. Elijah's mad at us and tweeting people Red and alert. texting people. Shields up. Ready, weapons. Engage. Engage. <laughs> I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering what what price I'm gonna pay for booting him off the call like that. That's oh, gonna be fun. That was epic. That'll be a good one. He, that was. That's gonna be fun. I'm gonna love he, that. He's already come and he's already trolling us in the chat. So, so right. it's my show. You can't kick me off my show. You said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah." I had the button and you were gone. That's what happens. You give me the broadcast booth, buddy. Hey, can, <laughs> can I? Can I? Can I press stop? <laughs>